Hello everyone, I'm Mike Ward and welcome to Conversations in Healthcare, a video series brought to you by DRG, part of Clarivate. Currently, we are focusing on the COVID-19 pandemic and the numerous challenges that it has unleashed on the healthcare industry. In line with this, I'm delighted to be joined by Seth uh, Lederman, who is the uh, co-founder, CEO, and chairman of Tonics Pharmaceuticals, a publicly quoted clinical stage uh, by a pharma company that's headquartered in New York, New York. Um, the company's portfolio uh, includes small molecules and biologics to treat pain, uh, psychiatric and addiction, uh, addiction conditions, um, as well as biologics to prevent infectious diseases. And in fact, as part of that strategy, the company is also working on a potential vaccine against COVID-19. So Seth, um, I hope you and those that you care about are keeping safe and well, and thanks so much for, for joining me. Mike, thank you very much for having me on. And um, yes, uh, we're very fortunate that we um, instituted work from home since we're based in New York City, and uh, so far, uh, everyone at Tonics is, is well. Yeah, so I mean, actually, it's, uh, as a first question, you know, what, what has been the uh, the most immediate impacts uh, of the pandemic on on the company and and its employees. Thank you for asking. Fortunately, we were able to move to a work from home model very quickly on March 10th, and so our employees were safe during the brunt of the uh, of the COVID nineteen situation in New York City. Um, I think that um, it's been a challenge. We're doing uh, obviously many calls that used to be phone calls are now Zoom calls and all meetings that used to be meetings are now Zoom meetings. So fortunately, we've been able to operate pretty effectively, but I think that we are coasting in a sense based on our pre-existing relationships and it will be hard to hire and to grow and to execute over time. So in the light of the pandemic, have you had to sort of introduce uh, sort of new, new practices, um, you know, new ways of do, doing things? Yes, thank you. Well, we, we have uh, switched to, as I said, a work from home model. We're all doing much more video conferencing um, and we, uh, it makes the days longer since there's no break between video calls and there's no downtime for travel. So all in all, I think we've stayed very efficient and um, it's, it's been a change, but fortunately the introduction of these new video conferencing services and other electronic communications has really allowed us to proceed without missing a beat. And, and, and when you do go back to um, uh, sort of like normal, you know, what will that look like? Are there going to be sort of you know, any changes that actually you have implemented that you think actually will maintain, we, we will sustain those going forward? Well, we think about COVID a lot because we're involved in a COVID vaccine program and we're speaking to experts and, and 
we we believe that COVID is going to become endemic, that this condition will be with humanity for the next years, decades, even longer. So long-term, there are issues about working in dense urban environments like New York City, particularly New York with its extremely dense workplace environments, including skyscrapers, et cetera. So we think that the future of our work and maybe other people's work will be a day or two at home, a day or two at a local office, and a day or two in the Manhattan office. Uh, offices generally are going to have to have a lower density of employees. They're going to have to be new physical barriers between cubicles and, and other things. So I think it will have long-term impacts. But again, we are all very fortunate uh, that this new video conferencing was available and has been readily adopted. Yeah. And I mean, when it comes to sort of, you know, clinical trials, um, you know, we know or we've seen evidence that the sort of social distancing, the restrictions on, on, on travel, etc., has had an impact on uh, both the conduct of the existing trials and the, and the initiation of new trials. Uh, you know, what, what has been the impact at, at, at Tonics? But Tonics, we've been fortunate. It's been terrible for uh, other programs and trials because so much valuable research was interrupted by this. But at Tonics, we were fortunate. Partly our, term was, our team was very nimble. They jumped on the new FDA recommendations about changing some in-person meetings to phone interviews or video interviews. So we were actually able to continue enrolling a phase three study in fibromyalgia uh, without any interruptions. And moreover, because so many studies were halted or stopped, we probably enroll are enrolling faster than we would have because we have more of the attention of many of the sites that we're working with. So I think that the FDA was did a great job of quickly issuing uh, guidelines. We modified our proposals and we were able to continue not only at the pace we were going at, but at a faster pace. And, and the sort of the, the connection with, with, for example, the PIs that, that who are running those trials, um, you know, how has that been affected at all? That's an excellent question. We, before the pandemic, we were known as a very hands-on sponsor. So our clinical operations team has strong relationships with the PIs and the staffs at the sites. And we think that that was a big benefit in this transition. So that having those strong relationships, we were able to transition the relationships to video and phone. And uh, hopefully, um, that will be sustained. But I do think that the investment we made before the pandemic in building in-person relationships has allowed us to carry through. Right. And so what is actually sort of the current status of ovule programs, both in fibromyalgia and also uh, PTSD? 
Thank you for asking. The, both programs, fibromyalgia and PTSD, are based on the same product, TNX-102-SL. And that is a uh, bedtime medicine. Its mechanism is to improve sleep quality. And we are involved in a phase three study in fibromyalgia that, as I said, is enrolling well. And uh, PTSD is in a phase three study that was uh, where enrollment was stopped early in the pandemic. So that also the timing for that was not affected. The fibromyalgia study, we expect to have the results of interim analysis in September. So just about uh, two and a half months away. And then top line in the first quarter of 2021. In the PTSD study, we recently announced that while we were prepared to unblind the study, we are delaying in order to have a conversation with FDA prior to unblinding. Uh, we want to discuss the statistical analysis plan with the FDA. So hopefully that will uh, not delay the top line too much. Right. So, I mean, what are the sort of the, sort of the key challenges you know, around, you know, uh, both, both those indications. The key challenges for both fibromyalgia and PTSD are the subjective endpoints. And, you know, there's no, there's no way with current technology to study pain or psychiatric symptoms in any other way than patient report. And this is a challenge. It's really the reason why many big pharmaceutical companies are no longer in the areas of pain and psychiatry. But we believe that we've developed internal expertise that allows us to do these stu studies high quality. And we think that the difficulty of the endpoints is compensated, for us at least, by the importance of bringing to market new medicines. In, in the case of our fibromyalgia, which is a chronic pain disorder, our medicine is a non-addictive, non-narcotic medicine. So a very important addition to the pharmacopoeia uh, yeah. when, when it's borne out in clinical trials. And in PTSD, um, our, our medicine also by improving uh, sleep quality has the potential to improve PTSD really at a syndromal level. But in addition to those problems, I will say that one of the biggest challenges in drug development generally is finding the right dose. And in both of these programs, we did uh, large studies at a lower dose, and now we've moved to a higher dose. So we learned a lot at the lower dose, but uh, we believe now we've taken the program from a place where we got inconsistent results into a dose range where we will get consistent results. Right, and uh, I mean, so th those are the programs. It's it's uh, you know phase three or or, or close to, to 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 phase three, and then again, I think with the same molecule, you're there are some other indications that you're also looking again looking at this, um, I guess, uh, troubled sleep um, uh, issue. Yes, well, uh, poor sleep or, or sleep disturbance 
is a factor in a number of different conditions. And it can lead to the onset of the condition, it can exacerbate symptoms, it can uh, contribute to an acute problem becoming a chronic problem. So sleep has a pervasive role in a lot of neuropsychiatric indications. And we've focused our attention um, on obviously fibromyalgia and PTSD, but also on alcoholism, which is now called alcohol use disorder, and also agitation in Alzheimer's disease. So in both of those programs, we have an, an active program to, to develop TNX-102SL for those indications. And in both cases, improving sleep quality is believed to be the mechanism. Right. And, and the sort of the mechanism of, of, of the molecule, what, what, what is actually targeting that, that helps in these sort of your different indications? The, uh, the active ingredient, cyclobenzaprine, has high affinity binding and antagonism for three receptors, the 5-HT2A receptor or the serotonin type 2A receptor, the alpha-1 adrenergic receptor, and the, um, and, and the, um, and the, H, the histamine H1 receptor. So in all three of those cases, it's an antagonist at the doses that we're using it. So it's a trimodal mechanism of action. And each of those receptors has been shown to have a role in sleep quality. Right, okay. So t turning to the, um, your efforts in, 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 in COVID-19, uh, uh, first, I mean, what is it that you actually had in, in, your, in your portfolio that suggested that you might actually have a vaccine candidate for, for COVID-19? And you know, could you just sort of describe you know, what the, sort of the timeline for the, sort of the discussions that took place uh, for you to you know, sort of pull the trigger on that, on that program? Thank you. We've been working on a vaccine vector platform for a number of years. The original indication was a vaccine to prevent smallpox. And the platform is called horsepox. So we've worked on this for a number of years and just in the fall of 2019 had gotten the results of an of an animal challenge test that were very encouraging in the smallpox vaccine space. So we were well positioned when COVID-19 came out to apply our platform to this new infectious disease. And when I say a platform, horsepox is, uh, is, is itself a live replicating virus but it's pretty straightforward to clone into that platform new antigens from other infectious diseases. And the, the WHO calls this problem, uh, you know, how, how do we protect against disease X, where the idea of X can be, a, put your disease there and, and that can, that, that's the problem we'll tackle.
So when COVID-19 came out, uh, we and others evaluated the biology, what was known from the SARS and MERS experience, and quickly decided that using the spike protein from COVID-19, uh, cloning that into our horsebox vector system would be a promising candidate to prevent COVID-19. Right. So, I mean, the, many organizations uh, you know, have stepped up the efforts to you know, develop uh, a, a COVID-19 uh, vaccine. So, you know, how, how is your approach going to be different from that of all the other people who are also uh, trying to develop a vaccine? Well, first, let me applaud all of the companies in this space, because there is an unprecedented uh, diversity of approaches and also collaboration in many areas in the development of animal models and, and immunological markers and things like that. So I think that the whole world pharmaceutical, biopharmaceutical community has stepped up in a just awesome way. And we're, we're delighted to be part of it. Um, in terms of how we're different, um, I think the most important difference is that our vector platform is a live replicating virus. I believe at last count, there were 126 programs on the WHO list of vaccines in development. And I believe that only four are live replicating uh, virus vector platforms. Uh, so that puts us into a small group. We're, we're really one of four of this approach. And the reason why that's distinctive is that live replicating viruses strongly stimulate T cell immunity. Now they also induce antibody immunity, but they are quite strong in inducing T-cell immunity, and we think that T-cell immunity is the key to getting a durable, protective immunity in people who are vaccinated. All right. So, and is that also based on, for example, the SARS and, and the MERS experience? Yes. Um, in, in the SARS experience, it's been shown that T-cell immunity persists seven years, more than seven years af after recovery, um, whereas antibodies are quite transient, you know, on, on the order of about three months. So while there could be some short-term protection, some temporary protection afforded by an antibody response, the solution for public health protection that would be meaningful over a large population, uh, we believe depends on the T cell response. So, so what, what are sort of the, you know, the, the biggest challenges and apart from, you know, actually you know, having the thing that's you know, going to sort of stimulate T cells, et cetera. What, what is the, what are the sort of the challenges that you foresee for, you know, vaccine development and the delivery of vaccines to a wide population? The biggest challenge is the time it takes because there are some things that you just can't speed up. And I think that 
what's happened with the COVID-19, you know, out of those 126 programs that are going on, I think the ones that were able to move the fastest tend to be ones that are more focused on antibody responses. And um, it's just hard to study T-cell responses because it's, it's much more complicated to evaluate T-cell responses. And also if you're trying to measure durable immunity, it takes longer because you're looking at durable immunity. So I think that um, the challenge is that society wants a vaccine you know, yesterday, and so do I as a member of, as a, as a human on this planet, I want a vaccine yesterday. But I think that it will uh, take time. Uh, we're moving as quickly as we can, um, but um, you know, there's some things that just can't be sped up. So, uh, I mean, do you have a sort of a sense of, you know, if, if everything, if you get a sort of uh, the wind behind you, do, do you know how quickly it would be for, for you to be able to actually have a, a vaccine that could be given to patients? Sure. Well, uh, you know, a vaccine given to patients and even an, even an approved vaccine is one thing. I think the other thing is which vaccine is going to come out and transform the public health arena so that we can go back to work and school and return to the level of normalcy that we enjoyed in 2019. I think it's possible, maybe even likely, that there will be vaccines out of this first batch that get FDA approval. Um, you know, they, from what I can tell about them, they seem safe, they engender immune responses, and they would afford some level of protection. Uh, but the question is, over time, uh, if the protection is temporary, will doctors want to use them? Will patients want to get them? Uh, so the longer question is, after there's been time, a year or two, of clinical trial experience and tests of whether the immunity is durable and whether it can make an impact on the public health situation will take a longer time. Right. So um, I, I just want to sort of turn to, to, to your business model because unlike many biotechs, Tonics actually has the ambitions to become a commercial company, at least that's what I understand, where you know, you'll be selling your own medicines and, uh, and vaccines. I, I just, um, you know, looking at where you are at the moment, have you sort of started to build uh, the sort of the necessary commercial infrastructure and, you know, in the management team, are, are there other people who actually have that experience of taking an idea all the way to, to you know, into, into patients? Thanks. It's an interesting question, an interesting time in the industry. Uh, you're correct that our default is that we will market our products ourselves. We haven't spent time and money pulling together those teams yet because we're still waiting to see the results of the fibromyalgia study. If the fibromyalgia results are positive, I think we'll quickly move in that direction. Um, you know, in general, in the United States anywhere, anyway, which is the market that I'm most familiar with, and previously I've, I've founded two companies with commercial products. Um, so I, I've experienced, 
I think that it, it's quite straightforward to get access to the supply chain um, uh, and to you know get on the shelves of pharmacies and get into the payers um, uh, formularies. So uh, I think the there's a trend among small companies now to market their drugs themselves. For example, Acadia has been very successful marketing their product um, as a standalone. And uh, very recently, uh, intracellular therapeutics uh, with their um, uh, antipsychotic product, they're, they're marketing on their own. So um, I, think, I think the trend is, is in that direction and uh, probably will continue that way. Clearly, if a big pharma came in and said that, you know, we have this existing infrastructure and you know, it would make sense for both of us, if, if we took it over, we would consider that. Um, you know, that would, that would be any, whatever makes business sense for, for, you know, us and our investors, we, you know, we would do. But I think that the, the edge that Big Pharma used to have in terms of marketing and distribution is, has really been eroded by technology, um, particularly now where the in-person um, uh, sale of pharmaceuticals, you know, the so-called detail person, um, seems to be less and less important. And much more of the activity in so-called marketing um, products in the United States is based on data. And it's based on, on, on you know, hard facts that you present to managed care payers. And, and, and you're basically, uh, interacting with highly knowledgeable people making fact-based decisions. So I think that that plays to the strength um, of, of, of a small company and, and really uh, de-emphasizes the traditional power of the Salesforce-based big pharma in the yeah. U.S. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, this, this has been fascinating. Uh, so as a sort of a, you know, a final uh, question, sort of just want to sort of you know, pivot back to sort of COVID-19. Um, and you kind of covered this in, in some of your answers, but I was just sort of, you know, you mentioned how you think that COVID-19 has the potential to be endemic. Um, so I was just wondering, what do you think the long-term impacts are going to be um, on you know, your, your business and what are you uh, going to have to do to adapt to that post-pandemic world? Well, thank you. And, and Mike, I'm glad we're ending on this question because this is a question for which I have great optimism. Uh, I started my career in HIV. I was a, in medical school when HIV was, uh, when AIDS was recognized and spent 10 years working in lab efforts to develop a vaccine for HIV. And um, I can tell you that that, that was a frustrating experience. Um, and, uh, and in retrospect, for, for me and many other people that were working uh, on HIV, I think we learned that it's very hard to make a vaccine where there's no natural immunity that you can copy. So essentially what vaccines do is vaccines mimic 
the productive immune response that some people make. And I, I think that that's true of every vaccine. I can't think of any of an example. So a vaccine, the best vaccine would provide to many people the protective immune response that a few people get naturally. And in HIV, we don't have that. There is no protective immune response that some people get, as far as we know. But in COVID, the tables are turned. As diabolical as this virus is, and it is completely unexpected in some of these, the biological aspects of how nasty this thing is, at least in this, we have a situation where a large number of people are asymptomatic or have mild symptoms. And for me, that is a lot to work with. That means that we have a lot of people who have productive immune responses to this, and we can mimic those immune responses and try to confer that type of immunity on a lot of people. And that's why we just recently announced an extension of a collaboration with a group called Southern Research, where we're going to be looking at over 100 people who have recovered from COVID and studying their immune response in great detail. And the purpose of that study is to develop a roadmap for what our vaccine should do. Because we think that by studying those immune responses very carefully, we'll be under, able to understand exactly what the immune response is in people who were able to deal with the infection uh, productively. So that, that is a source of optimism. I do think that whether it's ours, whether it's one of the other live replicating virus vaccines, or maybe some other one, I am very hopeful and, and have a strong belief that there will be a vaccine and we can get back to work and school, uh, uh, back to normalcy. Uh, I think that's a great, um, sort of an optimistic note to, 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 to end on. Uh, so Seth, thanks very much for uh, taking the time to, to speak to us today. And you know, I think that you know, some of the uh, experiences that you shared with us uh, are gonna resonate with, 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 with our audience. So uh, you know, thanks very much. Um, so if after listening to this broadcast, uh, you'd like to tune into future conversations in health, um, follow our LinkedIn page um, because we'll be posting alerts to future episodes. So in closing, I'd like to thank uh, Seth again for joining us and also thank uh, you, our listeners, for, for, for tuning in. Uh, so until next time, stay safe, um, stay healthy. I'm Mike Ward and I'll see you in the next episode.